I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's guest is one of the best-known and most experienced executives in the reinsurance broking world. Ross Howard is Global Executive Chairman of Lockton Re and has launched himself into a major project to help build a challenger reinsurance broker for the Lockton Group. In this podcast, we find out why he thinks the current market opportunities are some of the best he has seen in his long career, and why, provided you have the right platform as a base, knowledge, expertise and relationships are more important than they have ever been. I've been meeting and interviewing Ross on and off for about 15 years, and I think some of that rapport shows in this encounter. Ross is the consummate broker. Charming, knowledgeable, accommodating, imaginative and unflappable. I highly recommend you spend the next half an hour or so in his company. Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, who have kindly supported this podcast. Rick, first, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. Prime Holdings is a holding company, and we're excited to expand our claims TPA service, Claims Direct Access, which is the exclusive claims manager for Prime Insurance Company and has managed claims for Lloyds since 1995 when we've been on the Lloyds line slip as a risk taker. So we plan on coming over to London and uh, hopefully providing our partners more flexibility where we can issue prime paper where necessary. We can support and take risk on the Lloyds line slip and offer our superior claim service, which is evidenced by Prime's own loss ratio for the past 10 years. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. So again, we're excited to bring superior claim service to the Lloyd's marketplace and offer the ability to share risk alongside them as we manage the claims. Well, thanks so much, Rick. And I'll make sure there are all the right links in the podcast notes and let's get on with the podcast. Ross, thank you so much for giving up some of your valuable time to talk to the Voice of Insurance. We had Tim Gardner on the show probably about nine months ago now and time's flown past and you're really in the middle of, of a very, very busy project. I see news about Lockton Re every other day. So can you give us an update on where you feel you are now in this project to build out Lockton Re? Do you think you've built your core crew yet or do you think you've still got a long way to go? Well, Mark, thank you for inviting me to this podcast. I welcome chatting to you about where Lockton Re are going. And I think we're in a very positive direction as to how we've set the business up. As you mentioned, you talked to Tim Gardner nine months or so, and as you also say, that seems to have gone by in a flash, even though we've been in restrictions under COVID the whole time. But I think an update of it is that we remain extremely excited about the prospect at Lockton Re for our reinsurance business. And a lot of that is based on the people side of the business. I think that we've attracted some really quality people into an enormous number of lines of business that perhaps um, was far beyond what our expectations were when we started. 
And that, for me, gives me an enormous sense of, of comfort about the business going forward. I, I mentioned to you it's a people's business. And I still believe that and, and felt it for many, many years. And building relationships is about bringing the right people in to build those. And I feel we're moving in a very strong direction from that perspective, both in North America and indeed in London, where that specialty business is so much a big part of, of the London market on the reinsurance side. So, yeah, I think the direction is good. I think where we sit at the moment is good. I think the platform gives us major opportunities within the business to grow our client base by the service offering that we give those clients. And that's so important to us. And so everything that we've built as far as our building bricks has been all to do with getting the right people and, and providing the right service offering to those clients to come and use the Lockton Re platform and business. So you think you're done in terms of the core build and now it's about really fleshing things out and going out and getting that business? Well, the core build, I don't expect our build out of the business to stop. I think we've managed to get some really good, solid foundations in there, people-wise. I think we've been pretty successful in our sort of first full year of operating from a, a revenue point of view and a number of accounts point of view. But the quality of the, the clients that we've got on our book is significant, I think, and that is very pleasing. You know, it's a very high quality client base that we have, but I expect us to continue the growth. I mean, I have never seen this business with the opportunities that it has now in the reinsurance business, providing you've got the right platform. There is an awful lot of change going on in the broker world, as you know. There's a lot of change going on in the underwriting world, there's new setups happening. There's M&A activity. The business is seeing the most significant change that I can remember. And it does make me sort of feel a little strange that after, for myself, just over a year of being in the role, we are almost part of the establishment now because there's been so much movement going on elsewhere. And obviously, the discussions on the Willis and an Aon merger remain out there for whatever that will affect the, the Willis Re business. And that's that's not known, as we all know. But it's not just about that. It's about people moving, which has been a, a considerable amount of activity on, on that side. Well, Ross, I mean, you're not the only independent brokerage house that is ramping up its reinsurance broking operations. And you're right, it is the most exciting time. I've only ever known consolidation in reinsurance broking in my lifetime. And now I'm seeing huge investment going in and it's particularly exciting. Do you think all of those businesses will be able to succeed in their own way? Or do you think we're going to end up with either a single or a couple of big challenges emerging to challenge that big two, big three? I think the businesses will succeed in their own way, Mark. That's a very good way of looking at it. What everybody wants to be is the challenger to the major brokers. And I would ask the question on that is how many of those challenges are there that really have the capabilities in their business? And those capabilities are not just about people. They're not just about the analytical platform that you have. They're not just about the size and quality and strength of your business across the board, including the retail book and how that has a relationship with companies. And I use the word relationship because that's the important side of it, is to have a relationship with brand companies across the board. And I guess I feel, and I'm obviously biased on this, that the locked and rebuild out has everything at its disposal, including an owner who 
has invested significantly in the build out of that business and is happy to do so. And long may they be happy to do so with it. So, you know, I think it's who's going to challenge to be in that position and role that JLT rework were getting into and challenging the Willis and Rees of this world, although they were significantly way off it, but they were growing pretty well and get into that position. And I would suggest that there's not too many companies that actually have the broad base of all the requisite needs that you have to have to get into that position. In Lockton, you've got a strong position in retail, which not all of those aspirant insurance brokers have got. Is that something you're planning to leverage to your advantage? And I don't mean leverage in any kind of Spitzer-like tying sense. I mean, we had Steve Hearn mention this. Obviously, he's a former CEO of, of Woodestry himself, so he knows exactly what he's talking about. He said one of the great things about Woodestry was knowing that there was that multi-billions of, of business on the inward side and therefore make it easier to pick up opportunities on the outward side. Nothing to do with tying, but just with that opportunity, just knowing all those clients through the wider Willis relationship. Is that something you're looking to leverage yourself? I'm not sure leverage is the right, right yeah, word. Yeah, no, it's a slightly loaded word. I mean, just use that, I suppose, because in your career, you haven't necessarily had that before. It's a fascinating truth of the world was JLT Rees build out in America and nothing on the retail side. And so JLT Rees were not terribly well-known TLG group in the largest buyer of insurance and reinsurance. So I prefer to word it that we'd like to have a very strong relationship with major companies across the lines of the retail side and the reinsurance side. It's the comfort to us that Ron Lockton has relationships with all the major companies that he knows almost as friends over the years because Lockton in North America has built such an enormous business. But it's not a leveraged situation. If Ron Lockton has a relationship with the CEOs of those companies, he can talk to them about the reinsurance side of the business that we have. And, you know, Ron has done that. And in fact, he's even been on pitches with us with companies outside that. He loves it. We're turning him to a reinsurance broker. And that's what we want. I mean, it's great to have Ron Lockton, who is more than happy to get on calls and talk to any client about the reinsurance side and what they're doing on the retail side. And I mean, you know, putting well over $30 billion of premium into the marketplace, it's big business. So that is comfort. Yeah. 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 But I suppose he can open the door, but you have to perform once you get the invite. You do, Mark, but you have to perform anyway. We're not interested in the free lunch. You've got to have your wares there and do it. If you pick business up because of certain things that have nothing to do with servicing clients, you tend to lose them as quickly as you get the business. So what we want to do is get the door open to companies and say, I'm really interested in seeing what Locked and Re can provide and do. And we think once we get to that role and position, we succeed. Our proposition is a good proposition for anybody. Yeah. Given your current scale, is your strategy to stick to niche type areas and be a real specialist and try and be the best in a particular small area? or are you going to go to be a complete generous and try and compete across the board everywhere? I wouldn't say across the board at this stage. We will concentrate on our core strengths, which are in North America, our relationship that Tim Gardner and Nick Durant have with the, the global companies and the historical relationships that they have with those companies going back a considerable amount of time. And indeed, that Aron Lockton will have with those companies 
And again, that's about a relationship thing and the fact that a lot of those companies are very, very happy to deal with the Lockton Group because they see the Lockton Group as a real differentiator to them as far as their business options are concerned. And, you know, we all believe there should be more choice in the business at the moment. It's going the other way. So we have our global business that's going pretty well, frankly. And then we have our specialty business that we work on. And all of that's come out of the London market with those classic London specialty lines, working with our North American brokers. You know, our healthcare business is a significant business in North America with our team in Minneapolis and our team in London. Our marine and energy business is growing. We've got a new aviation business that's that's off-running and, and from London. And so we've got those specialty businesses that are in London and growing. And of course, we've got a specialty business as well, which is you know to do with terror, political risk, and another line. So we've got the classic London specialty business, but we have a platform in the United States that's got a very, very strong global reach with those companies. And we're sticking to those areas at the moment. But once we get ourselves down the road, we will no doubt look at the expansion into other lines of business and areas. But it's a long road to be doing that. But we'll get there. You've got some pretty ambitious revenue targets. I suppose it wouldn't be a Lockton company if you didn't have ambitious revenue targets. Do you think you can get there? within the right sort of time frame, without some form of M&A, or do you think it could be all organic? Well, I've heard some numbers thrown around about our revenue targets, and I have to say I'm not quite sure where those come from. I certainly have not been in a situation where I've seen, particularly with the budgeting and process with Lockton, that they say you've got to get to a certain number. Their model doesn't work like that. Their model is to grow, and to grow with people, and to grow with insurance companies and to service those companies properly. And that's all we set ourselves to do is to do that. If you ask us, do we want to be the number three reinsurance broker in the world? If we provide the service to those clients and we do the right thing to them and we grow it to be something like that, yes, we'd be happy to. But we don't want to be number three just for the sake of it and just to say we've got revenues of that. And we don't need to either. And so if we get to something like the level that we need to from a growth point of view of those sort of figures, that's fine. What we want is to attract the best clients who want to use our services in those areas that we've got our specialty knowledge. And also by using our digital platform, our analytics tool, our Sage analytics tool that we've got that is being utilized fairly heavily by a lot of people. So that's what we want. And there's no real numbers set on that. It's just how we actually sell ourselves to companies so they realize that we can be a real value to them in what they're trying to do. That's great. We might as well get to talk about the market. The market's particularly interesting. Obviously, the strategic competitive landscape for reinsurance broking is fantastically interesting, but the market itself is fascinating too. And now that we're in March, what is the outlook for 1st of April and the mid-year renewals? Well, there's been a lot of talk about it. And I think it's safe to say January on most lines of business perhaps didn't see the increases that you thought and and, and the capacity was readily available. So all the discussion of being a really hard market sort of didn't really appear. And I think it all starts with the retro market that, that people were worried about trapped capital and everything. And that wasn't the case generally. And so I think you will see for April renewals not so much of a rate increase that we saw before. 
But I just like to point out again here, and I don't want to be the doomsday merchant, but you know, nobody really has a handle on COVID losses at all, do they? I mean, you've no doubt spent hours talking about that, Mark. And there's talk of sort of 80 billion of estimate of COVID losses, of which only 20 to 25 have been reserved. And, you know, if that's true, there's a significant amount still to come. You look at these Texas winter storm losses, some estimates have been around the 20 billion mark. That's fairly significant with everything else going on. So I think you will see the activity for for April and June renewals being modest sort of increases in in some form, but nothing too drastic, I suspect, because I think the capacity will be around, generally speaking. I suppose, Sarah, because any compound increase is probably welcome from the reinsurer's point of view. Yeah, reinsurers are never happy about the increases that, that, that they get. I still absolutely remember 2002, three, four, where all I ever got from people was, well, I, the increases that we're getting are nothing like they were in other major hard markets. And, and you know, it's going to be a decent sort of return, we suspect. Well, as it turned out, it was an amazingly good return and as good as it was back in 86. And it went on for longer, didn't it? It was a considerably longer, harder market for various reasons. And of course, the financial crisis in 2008 that lengthened it a bit as well because capital wasn't readily available. The thing we're just seeing now, there is a lot of capital about, and I think it softens the the rate increases. And is there anything wrong with that? Well, no, there isn't anything wrong with it at all. It, it is a marketplace. And let's be honest, I mean, the insurance companies have also had their problems with the loss ratio. And so, yeah, having an increase on the reinsurance costs is, is a bit of a double whammy for them, except for there seem to have been some significant increases in lots of lines of business on the insurance side of the, the products. And, and I think that's the other thing that the market have taken that into account at what the reinsurance rates will be. And I think that's been a dif- differentiator this year end so that they understand that if the primary rates are going up 20%, putting a 20% reinsurance increase in as well is a heavy burden. You mentioned about capital being abundant. Is it right to say that that capital is fairly discerning? It won't just go in at any price. It, it's got a return hurdle and it. it's fairly disciplined about sticking it to is. it. Yeah. And again, that's the difference in previous decades, I think, where you had perhaps in the past some capital that, that wasn't necessarily as educated as well as, as we are now. You know, I, I think the reviews that are done, the work that are done, the analytics that are done are the modern way of our business. And, and so you know, to attract capital, you've got to be putting a business plan together that really makes sense for a period. Now, you, know, you can argue the length of that period. And I, I think that seems to be the thing these days that perhaps the, the PE capital has a limited time on it. And I think that makes life quite difficult in today's world. And, you know, there's entities out there that after three years, they're moving on to the next capital provider or finding a different way forward to raise capitals. And in many ways, that's why I think the business is having so much M&A work is because there's short-term capital that wants a return and you have to move on after that. And so there's only so many ways that you can go in the direction you're looking to go. So you see a lot of M&A activity going on all over the place. And that, I think, will continue. Um, mentioned about COVID, again, it seemed to be clear that in many treaty renewals, reinsurance renewals, that COVID had been parked to one side, had been not taken into account rather specifically. 
again, in terms of the animal spirits of the marketplace, you're a broker, you're used to looking into the whites of people's eyes and seeing whether they're, the underwriter's scared or not. Is there an element of fear, actually, in the market in terms of a certain amount of resistance, lack of confidence? And would that be attributable to COVID in any way? Because we know there's so much uncertainty around it. And really, particularly on the casualty side of it, we don't really know whether liabilities are going to be apportioned, if, if any. I suspect it's part of it. I think we're just in that period of time where the uncertainty is highlighted by the marketplace that we're in. Had we had a much harder market at January 1, I think people would be a lot more bullish. They might not tell you that, but they would be. You've got situations now where people have have not had particularly good returns on reinsurance lines of business, and they might think that the changes they got at 1-1 were not particularly going to be groundbreaking for them. And, and therefore, going back to this capital providers, how they're going to get to the return that they need to do. And so the uncertainty is, if you add COVID onto that, then it's a concern and a worry. And you know, I, I come back to this point of how reinsurance can play in that, that area, because reinsurance can be used to raise capital. It can be used for all sorts of things to protect the company. And I think that comes back to this point that the brokers who who are really going to succeed are the ones that are looking at the solutions for those clients in these uncertain times. And, you know, if, if I was running a syndicate or I was running a company and, you know, I got the renewal and if you're in the reinsurance business, you weren't getting quite the increases you wanted to. You know, the, the property cap market has had some significant losses over the last couple of years and and it continues to have them now down in the southern storms and did people feel they really got the return that they wanted on the increases and I suspect the answer is no and they're looking at well what's out there as well on top of that I can see the uncertainty of it I really can and, and I can understand that so, you know you've got Lloyd's Central looking at you to improve your results which is understandable given where we are in, in the business cycle so there's a lot of pressure on the businesses to come up with the solution to problems. And if it's a really hard market, you can feel a bit of confidence about life and that we're getting the rate and we're pretty sure we're going to get the return on the business with a, with a fair wind. And conversely, on the insurance side, again, with so much uncertainty around, does that increase demand for reinsurance a bit more, you know, removing the volatility around results and making sure they do post consistent profits? Yeah, I think it's a similar situation. But I think when we look at the rate matrices, I do think that probably the insurance side has seen some fairly significant increases of lots of lines of business, some where you can just name your price. And lines of business that have historically always been very flat in what they're doing. You know, we're talking to clients, you know, they're getting, for them, decent increases on those lines of, of business. So I think they've seen a bit more activity in certain areas than perhaps the reinsurance side. Now, I'm not talking about financial lines and D&O and E&O, but you know, obviously on the retail side, rates have gone through the roof, but reinsurance is still pretty hard to place. But you just generally feel that they've had some increases on the business and that there's a little bit more sort of comfort level in where they are. But we'll have to see when we look at where we end up from a rate point of view. Great. Okay. Well, let's talk about the future. I've been reporting on insurtech phenomena for the last four or five years now, and it seems to be getting particularly exciting. We've got big reform projects within the industry itself and some really interesting initiatives. 
And again, you're having the luxury of really building something fairly new without a huge amount of legacy. So how do you see the reinsurance market of the future and how are you building the reinsurance broker that's going to serve that market of the future? Well, what are we doing? We certainly believe in the digital world. We believe in analytics. We've built our own software platform with Sage. We're very much part of how we see the business going forward. We believe in the relationships that people have with clients, but we also believe that you have to be part of the analytical world to get to the level of a business of scale, which we wish to get to. And so, you know, I think that you will see larger tranches of business being written by reinsurance companies, but I think you'll find that has to be a platform you know, I mentioned electronic placement in lawyers that came in just at the right time for us to work from home and work remotely. But we all will have to transact the business in a better way, not taking away the, the face-to-face communication, but when it comes to the transaction side of it and the analytical side of it. We've built our business from scratch, so we've been able to start with systems that we think will really work in that environment. We've seen reinsurance exchanges and marketplaces come and go over the years, often gone because brokers haven't necessarily adopted them. But we've seen to be a new crop with this in tech world. Do you think any of these are likely to succeed where others perhaps hadn't worked out so well? I think as our business moves on into having a different platform, I think they will have a place in our business. I can see that. I think they're not going to replace the communication of individuals with each other, the communication of commitment from people to service the business of of claims and contract wordings and and everything that's so important and and language in contracts that these days are more important than ever. And, And so service offering of brokers has to improve in many areas. And I think that uh, that's one of the things that we hope to offer. But I think there's a place for for digital platforms that can provide some capacity where needed. But reinsurance can be a very technical and specific business with expertise that's required, and that's going to continue. And if there's a platform that is there for capacity risks, I can, can see that being something that people might use but it's not going to take the place of the broking houses that provide the service that's needed in the future. So as long as they facilitate that relationship and don't try and take over the role of the broker, you'd be fine with it? Well, I think there'll be clients who might wish to see something like that. I think so. I think expertise and knowledge in today's world is more important than ever. I really do. And it might be that comes from a more elderly person like myself who's been around for a number of years that says knowledge is key and king, but I just think it is. I mean, all these questions that you're asking, Mark, about the future and COVID losses and, you know, people live off their experiences in how they answer those. We were looking at this year end and talking about how many people have seen a really hard market in the business and it's amazingly few in the end of the day. And so, you know, knowledge is very important. Lots of people on the broking side and on the underwriting side that didn't perhaps even know how to ask for a rate increase on business. And you think, oh, don't be ridiculous. But it's true. So training has to come into play on that. So I just think knowledge is key. I think experience is key. I think expertise is key. But if you have a platform for business lines that don't need that are capacity risks where all that knowledge and expertise is already playing out. It can have its place. It can have its place. 
the things that will be commoditized will be commoditized and then you're always going to have to add value and that's why they always need uh, the gray hairs yeah and you know we dismiss the claim side so much in our business it's so important you know we've taken over a lot of business over the last 12 months we've won a lot of new accounts that we knew and i think a lot of it has been on the fact that we know how to handle the claims in those areas and, and we have expertise and we we have in-house claim service we don't send our claims handling to outsource it to anywhere you know we have it in our office wherever in the office with our people with the brokers and they have absolute knowledge of it they know that line of business they know what's covered what isn't covered they know the underwriters they know their views on it and you know, we have a whole list of claims that we've been able to resolve and sort out because we know the client and we know the company and the person dealing with it is sitting in london talking to the market or sitting in the States, talking to the markets over there. So you can't beat that. One last bit of futurology. We've seen automatic underwriting initiatives unveiled at Lloyd's. Uh, that's the key syndicate. Is this something you're going to leave to some of the younger members of the team? Or how far do you think this could go in terms of how far can we automate the value chain of insurance? And how far could it go into reinsurance, for example, on a sort of expansive moment, you might think that 12-month treaties might become very obsolete very quickly if we're able to fack out every individual piece of reinsurance could be done facultatively in an instant with no frictional cost. Could you ever see a world like that happening? And, and then in which case, where would a reinsurance broker sit in all of that? There's a lot of questions there, Mark. Golly, you've got the tough ones to the end, haven't you? And leaving poor old me, you know, struggling with my memory and everything else. But look, there is going to be a place in Lloyd's or anywhere else for markets like key. I'll tell you why I think that. You know, Lloyd's has evolved over many, many years. And it's absolutely known that John Neal is pushing for costs to come down in how they operate and what they do. And, you know, that's all coming from the fact that well over 40% of Lloyd's business comes from binding authorities where the acquisition costs of that business are just too great. That's what Lloyd's think. And I can understand that. And so we have to find a way of cutting down on the cost structure of how we do things. And I've already said how much I think expertise and knowledge is there. But if you can build capacity behind that, those syndicates have got expertise and knowledge and you're happy to do it, then I can see that being of a value as capacity sits behind the leaders of knowledge and expertise. You know, the old Lloyd system of having a leader who knows that line of business and everyone else sort of following, which has been going for hundreds of years, basically. It's no different to that, really, because it's just saying, well, I will follow those people who actually know that line of business. And I think for many years, you know, the brokers used to go around Lloyd's and pick up lines of two and a half and one percent from markets that actually didn't have any particular knowledge about that line of business. They'd look at who the leader was and say, oh, he's a good fellow. He knows that business. I'll write one or two percent on that. They weren't actually offering the value to that. And so I think if you have the leaders still there and, and, you know, this whole thing comes back to well, how they're being paid for that knowledge and expertise, because that's important to do that. And it's not just in terms and rate. It's also contract wording and, and stuff like that that just is so key. So I think that there is definitely a place for key syndicates and others in this world, as long as you keep the expertise, keep the knowledge of lines of business with leaders and with markets that actually will always be the forefront of, of the Lloyd's marketplace. 
And that's how it survived over the years. It really has. There's always going to be a broker there, whether it's an insurance or insurance broker, finding that follow capacity, whether it's follow capital or follow capacity, um, you're fairly agnostic, I presume. Yes. I'm not agnostic about which broker it is. It should be asked. (laughs) (laughs) I'm agnostic about who is that syndicate. But I think I just want to make the point that the market makers, if we call them that, have to be treated well in how they're looked after on this situation. And, And I think... That's the key to the business going forward is, you know, Lloyd has always had this expertise in lines of business. We don't want to brain drain to, to other parts of the world. We've got to be working in an environment where their knowledge and expertise and leadership qualities is rewarded in how the structure of the business is. So do you think there should be leaders' fees? Or do you think the leader already gets rewarded anyway because they get the showing? I mean, they get shown the business, they get to write as much of it or as little of it as they want. I think... If they're doing all the contract wordings and they're doing everything else, it's not unreasonable for them to be paid in some format for that. And I say that, that if you go to, to have capacity syndicates that just follow certain leads, then they're not carrying out that work and their cost structure is different. But, you know, that's the debating point. What I want to see is I want to see that the expertise and quality of underwriting, the people who are doing that, looked after, rewarded, and made sure that they're still in that role and position. Because otherwise, you know, they take all the grief. If you ever look at the aviation business, when there's an aircraft goes down, the press immediately say, led by. (laughs) It's like, well, you've led that, you know. And so it's the leader gets a lot of criticism and can choose what they want to do. But it's the lead role and position. And they're the people that make the market to a certain extent. And they have to be looked after as much as possible. So do you think we should just leave the market to sort out those different structures because there's hundreds of different ways of doing it? Or presumably you don't really want anything mandated one way or another? No, I know. And I think the market will find its own way forward. And there's been 300 years of debate about how Lloyd centrally should look after those markets and see. And look, with the central fund and everything and its structure, Lloyd has to take a view on market performance and what they're doing. But I'm sure they don't particularly want to get involved in in fee structures and everything like that. And I think the market itself will find the right way of doing it. It will. I'm very keen that the people who've got the expertise in the business remain in a situation where they feel that that responsibility, if you like, is remunerated and rewarded. In I mean, we all brokers go to certain markets as their leads and work with them. That's all based on relationship and expertise and knowledge. It really is. That's what it is. That's the key cornerstone of our business, I think, in my view. Well, Ross, I think that's a really good place to end. I've come through the list of my questions. And it only remains for me to to thank you so much for giving us the benefit of your considerable experience and charm. And it's still a very fast-moving story, so make sure you book in a date at some point to come and tell us how you're getting on. Nice to talk to you, Mark. And I'm pleased that your venture's moving on so well, and that's great news, actually. See, independent of thought, independent of view like ourselves at Lochtonary, independent and knowledge and expertise. You've been in the business for a long time and and we all have and I think we provide an awful lot to what's happening in the future. I didn't pay Ross to say that, by the way. That that seemed genuinely spontaneous. So thank you so much, Ross. Oh, you're not going to pay me for this. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure and come and speak to us soon. Take care, Mark. Nice to talk to you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, Don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. 
Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. Thank you.